Alright, Hebrews, the better letter. This will be our tenth study, I believe, in our uh, quarter of the book of Hebrews. And last week, if you missed it, uh, we were able to study how Jesus gives a better sacrifice from Hebrews chapter 10. We covered that entire chapter, and the writer is going to fully expound and uh, compare the old covenant sacrifice to the new covenant sacrifice. That's exactly what's going on in Hebrews chapter 10. We were able to talk about uh, the old covenant sacrifice and how it simply covered the sins of the people. It did not cleanse the sins of the people. We talked about the difference between those two things, between covering and cleansing. Uh, Last week was really uh, part three of a mini-series in the book of Hebrews Uh, that the writer has been building on for the last few weeks of our study, actually. In chapter 8, remember, we talked about uh, how Jesus gives a better covenant. And in that study, we saw how the, the foundation of our covenant in the New Testament is better because it is in Christ, because it was built on better promises. And then in chapter 9, he goes on and says, Well, not only is the covenant better, the sanctuary that we've been given is better. And that's what he talks about in chapter 9. And that's the place in which the covenant in chapter 8 is carried out and executed, and that is the sanctuary. And we talked about how much better the sanctuary in Christ truly is. Then last week, again, we talked about how Jesus gives us a better sacrifice, part three of that mini-series that we find within the book. And... This is how the covenant and the sanctuary were, covered, or were executed and carried out, is this sacrifice. And how the new covenant, we see this better sacrifice through Jesus. Remember, each and every time that we've been studying, and this is what we're going to be studying tonight, a little flash forward here, how Jesus inspires a better faith. He inspires a better faith in Hebrews 11. But each time that we've been looking in this past few weeks within these Uh, different categories and and studies, we've been seeing how the writer is fully and unequivocally showing and proving how the Old Covenant is inferior. Yes, it served its purpose, it was its tutor, it was the schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. However, when compared to the law of Christ, it is absolutely inferior. Every single counterpart to the old is better in the new. And those three chapters could really be summed up in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 where he says that he has taken out the old and made it obsolete. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. The covenant, the sanctuary, the sacrifices, all of them are shown to be woefully coming short of the new covenant, the new sanctuary, and the new sacrifice of Jesus. So chapter 8 is talking about the what? Chapter 9 was centering on the where. Chapter 10 was centering on the how. And that leads us to our study tonight on the why in Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is far and away the most famous section of this book. When it comes to our study, chapter 11 is the most absolute uh, go-to chapter if you're going to talk about Hebrews, and why is that? Well, faith, right? see a couple people saying that. It's the chapter of faith, the hall of faith, the faith hall of fame, some have called it. There's many names for this chapter, and there's a good reason why. There's a good reason why, because it's such a classic, really, passage from God's Word. It ties so many different people together and interweaves them together, all into the same purpose, talking about one single thing, and that is faith. It is absolutely the most heralded, the most studied, the most referenced chapter of this book in the book of Hebrews. And there are obvious reasons for that being the case, and I'm not about to say that that's not accurate. I'm not about to change that. I think it should be probably the the most referenced chapter of the book of Hebrews. However, I do believe that We may never have looked at this chapter within the full context and the entire scope of what's going on in Hebrews. Once we do that, it will give all the more meaning to this great chapter in which we've always loved. 
once we really see what the writer is trying to get us to glean from it, once we see the full picture of how the better covenant we've been given and the better sanctuary in which that covenant is enacted, the better sacrifice by which the better sanctuary executes the better covenant, it is obvious that a stronger, more founded faith should follow. And that's exactly what happens in our text tonight. But faith is the absolute most fundamental element of Christianity. Well, how do I know that? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, we're able to read, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says here that if we have these things, if we have these attributes, these Christian graces in our lives, then we are going to be fruitful. We are not going to be barren. We will have the clear knowledge that we should have of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But notice what Peter identifies as the first of these fundamental and foundational attributes. The first part of the process. What would that be? Well, he says faith. Add to your faith virtue. He doesn't come out of the middle and say, you know what, you need to add to your godliness faith, add to godliness you know, and go on the list. He starts with faith for a reason. And that's because faith is the foundation, the absolute core, the absolute fundamental attribute that a Christian has to have. Faith is the one that leads and the other follow. And that's exactly what the Scriptures say and how we should be growing in and from our original foundational faith. You know, through all out Scripture, this is going to be the most obvious statement you've ever heard in a sermon, but all throughout Scripture, faith is the most fundamental and most elementary expectation that God expects from His followers. Faith. Faith is elementary. We talked about the elementary principles, the first oracles of God, over in chapter 5 and chapter 6, right? That's the same thing we're talking about here. Faith is that elementary, that foundational, that fundamental thing and aspect of a Christian life. You look back at all the way at Adam and Eve, God, what did He require of them? That they remain faithful to Him and not eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. You look at Noah. Fast forward to Genesis 6 and through 8 and look at Noah, how he saved the human race. Because he was found faithful. The only faithful family in all the world was Noah. And how was he saved? Because God found him faithful. He found him just. Go all the way to Genesis chapter 12 as we see Abraham's story begin and how God requires him to leave his country. Not only does he leave his country, he offers his son that he waited so long for. What was this in an effort to do? to test Abraham's faith. So all the way back to the patriarchal age, all the way back to creation, all the way back to the flood, faith was the fundamental expectation from God. Look at Moses. Moses was the one that was told that he, he needed to have faith in God, that God was going to lead the Egyptians out of bondage. After 400 years of silence, Moses had to have faith that God would lead the people of Egypt to the promised land. And you get the point. All throughout Scripture, God has required faith. Faith in His followers. All the way from the beginning of time to the Mosaic age, to the Christian age, and to us tonight at Buford Church of Christ, He requires our faith. Why? Well, we're going to learn that probably it's because He's procured a better covenant for us. Maybe it's because He has ensured a better sanctuary for us. Maybe it's because He has offered a better sacrifice for us. And that is why He requires 
a better faith within us. He expects faith to be inspired among each and every one of us. And isn't that a little bit fair? Isn't that fair? If He's going to give us a better covenant, a better sanctuary, a better sacrifice, and a better all things going on in the book of Hebrews, if He's going to do that, is it not fair for us to have a better faith in response? That's what the writer is going to be talking about tonight. You look at this chapter, well, you look at the book of Hebrews in and of itself. The word faith, or the idea of faithfulness, is mentioned 31 times in the book of Hebrews. 31 times. Well, guess how many of them show up in this chapter alone? That would be 24. 24 of those 31 times are mentioned in this one chapter. That is why this is such a great section of God's Word. Let's read more about that faith. We're not going to start in Hebrews 11. We're going to start back in chapter 10 and verse, 20, and verse 39 as we see how the end of chapter 10 about the sacrifice of Jesus, we're going to see how it ends. In chapter 10 and verse 39 it says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We are those who believe to the saving of the soul, it says. What does that mean? Does that mean that belief saves and brings salvation? That's part of the equation, is it not? But what he's saying is, Christians believe up into the very salvation of their soul, meaning throughout the entirety of their life. One of our applications earlier in the study of Hebrews was to finish, to go to the end, not simply to stop halfway through. Christians are those who believe to the saving of the soul. He's not saying uh, that salvation is based on faith alone. No, he's saying we believe. We maintain that belief and we maintain that faith all the way to the saving of our soul and all the way to the end. Our foundational faith is what leads us to be found pleasing to God. And that brings on the salvation of our souls. Now we're ready to go ahead and open up the text for tonight in Hebrews 11 as we discover that Jesus gives us a better reason to have a better faith. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. First three verses there in Hebrews 11. So I'm going to ask you, Ben, what is faith? What is faith? You know where I'm going to take him? I'm going to take him to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Why? Because it's literally a Webster's Dictionary look kind of of what faith is. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to see what the Bible is defining things as, isn't it? We've got to look at the context. We've got to look at the certain things around it. Well, with this verse, it's pretty obvious what it's saying in verse 1. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, number one. Number two, it is the evidence of things not seen. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the substance of things hoped for? What's he trying to say? Well, it is believing in what we hope for. What is hope when it comes to the Bible? Hope is the combination of an expectation and a desire. So what is the word substance? It's the core foundation like we're talking about this substance ESV calls it the assurance does it not it is the assurance of things hoped for that's what this idea of substance is faith is the substance it is the assurance of the things that we have hoped for the things that we desire and the things that we expect from God that is what faith is and secondly so first of all it is the substance it is the assurance of the things we hope for. And secondly, it is the evidence of things not seen. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the evidence of things not seen? Well, we're going to talk about that for a second. Even though we have that substance, 
and we have that assurance of our faith, one element of faith is the fact that it takes faith to have faith. Hope that didn't fly over your head. It takes a little bit of faith to have faith. What am I saying? It's the evidence of things not seen. It is believing in certain things that you may never have seen, felt, or touched, or heard, or smelt, or used your senses to, to feel. Call that empirical evidence. Sometimes we don't need to have all this empirical evidence to believe in something. We don't need to be able to use our senses to have that belief. We simply have to believe anyway. What are you saying, Ben? Well, you know, you study with some certain atheists. You study with some teenagers trying to find out what they believe in this life. You study to anybody who is struggling with their belief in the existence of God. Sometimes all they want to see is the scientific evidence, right? I want to see the evidence. I want to know the evidence behind why I should believe in the existence of God. I want to be able to feel. I want to be able to see. I want to be able to smell. I want to be able to touch all these different evidences, this scientific evidence to prove that there is a God and that He exists. Show me the data. Show me the evidence. Show me the empirical proof. To that point, guess what? There's a lot of it. There's a lot of proof. There's the ontological argument. There's the cosmological argument. There's the teleological argument. And there's the moral argument for the existence of God. There's a ton of scientific and way above what you've probably ever known about why we can believe in the existence of God. It's a great study to look at the Christian evidences and the apologetics to see as to why we can truly believe in the existence of God. There is ample evidence to believe and to have faith in God's existence. However, the writer of Hebrews is not trying to give us that empirical evidence. He says faith is not based on science. It's not based on what you can see and what you can feel and what you can smell and what you can use your senses to discern. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It takes a little faith to have faith. The writer of Hebrews would challenge us to believe and to have faith in our Creator even though we weren't there to witness it happen. Even though we weren't there to hear Him say, let there be light, we still have to believe it happened. Even though we weren't there to see Him form the dry lands, we have to have faith that it happened. This is something that Jesus would talk about in John chapter 20 and verse 29, if you want to look at that. In the idea of Thomas doubting, Thomas, touch my hand, touch my scar, touch me, feel me, see this empirical evidence that I am real, this resurrected Christ. Use your empiricals to see all of that. What does he say after it in John 20 and verse 29? Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. You see, some fundamental part of our faith has got to be faith. This idea of believing and having faith in the things that we have not seen or experienced for ourselves. That's a little hard to grasp, Spitman. I want the proof. I want the data. I want the science. It's out there. But our faith is built on something more fundamental than that. Our faith is built on the evidence of things not seen. Our God. This foundational and fundamental willingness to put our faith in the creator of the universe was able to give the elders a good testimony. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. What's it talking about? The ancient ones. All these people he's about to list in this chapter, they obtained a good testimony by faith, by believing in things that they necessarily could not see or understand. By the way, 
you know, if we had all the scientific and empirical proof for the existence of God, guess who it wouldn't have been that we proved? It wouldn't be God. Why? If we had all the proof and all the scientific... Scientific, I don't know, that ain't a word. All the scientific evidence, it wouldn't have been God. Why? Because we're, we are not capable of describing an infinite God. If we fully described God, He wouldn't have been the God that's infinite. He wouldn't be all-powerful. He wouldn't be all-knowing. He wouldn't be all-present. He wouldn't be all-good. If we can describe Him and understand Him fully, He's not the God He claims to be. God is infinite, and the finite are not able to grasp Him totally. Maybe that helps you tonight as you think about faith and believing in things that you necessarily have not seen. That's exactly the way faith was to be intended. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. For the rest of this chapter, really, the writer is going to go back to what he's been doing all along throughout the book of Hebrews to show them all these heroes and heroines of faith building off of this oral tradition, this nostalgia. Hey, you remember Abel? You remember Enoch? You remember Noah? You remember Abraham and Moses and all these great guys we've always heard about and studied about? Each one of these people had faith. Go back to 10, chapter 10, verse 39, that led to the salvation of their souls. That obtained the good testimony in this section here. They believed in things which are not visible. All right. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 5. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and though, though it he being dead still speaks, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Notice we've talked about the first two elements of what the idea of faith is. We find another one here in this section. First of all, it's the substance, the assurance of things hoped for. Second of all, it's the evidence of things not seen. Third, we see this third fundamental element that we haven't discussed yet. Obedience. Action. Faith requires action. It requires obedience. And as we go throughout all of these different uh, examples from the Old Testament, we're not going to talk about each example. We're not going to talk about exactly what the writer is saying. We know those stories, hopefully. If you don't, go back and consult our greatest commentary on Hebrews, the Old Testament. We simply don't have time to look at every example. But what we do have time to look at is the product of their faith was action and it was obedience. The combination of faith, the really perfect combination, the perfect mixture, is hearing, believing, and obeying. That is what faith in the Bible is, and that's what we're going to see in chapter 11. By faith, what did he do? Abel offered. You see that verb? You see the action there? By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And because of him doing that, because of him allowing that faith to supplement it with works, it says that he obtained witness that he was righteous. And we still talk about him to this day, it says. Even though he's dead, he still speaks because of the faith and because of the obedience that he dis displayed. Secondly, look at Enoch. It says, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Do you see the action that Abel had? Or Enoch had? Enoch pleased God. And because of that, he had been given the good testimony. Because of that, he was taken up so that he did not see death. Because of that... He obtained a place in heaven with God. And he was not found because God took him. But he pleased God. Abel offered to God. You see the action and the obedience necessitating their faith. Keep continuing verses 6 and 7. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You know, there's really no confusion left here in the first verse of chapter 6. First part of, of not chapter 6, verse 6. There's no doubt what he's trying to say. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because it is the most fundamental and the most foundational process or part of the process of a Christian. If you are expecting the salvation of the soul, chapter 10 and verse 39, then you're going to have to have faith. Faith that causes you to act. That's what the writer is saying. If you expect to be saved by God, then you're going to have to at the very least believe in God. You can't have salvation through God if you don't even believe in God. You know, one of my professors at Freed Harvard, Ralph Gilmore, he said, guess what? There's no atheist in the afterlife. You know why? Because they've seen God. It's impossible to be an atheist in the afterlife because they know there is a God. They simply didn't believe in Him. If you want salvation through God, then you have to believe in God. And trust me, as the writer says, He is a rewarder to all of those who do so. Look what he says about Noah. Look how he rewarded Noah. It says, by faith, Noah, what did he do? What was the action? What was the obedience? He, obe he moved. He moved. He obeyed by moving. He prepared the ark. His faith caused him to act and to obey. Faith in what? Guess what? Something he had never empirically experienced before. What? Rain. He had never seen rain. He had never felt rain. He had never even heard of rain. And yet he moved and prepared the ark anyway. That is the kind of faith we're talking about tonight. Because of his belief in this unseen idea of rain, his entire household was saved. And he became heir of righteousness that is founded in the faith he had in God. Here again, faith supplemented with obedience. Let's go ahead and read the next section of this text. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Let's stop right there and then continue in verse 17. Continue this idea of Abraham. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead from which he had also received him in a figurative sense. Stop right there in verse 19. Here we find Abraham. Guess what? The largest section on faith in the book of Hebrews is dedicated to who? The father of the faithful. That makes sense, doesn't it? Abraham is the father of the faithful and his wife Sarah. So the writer of Hebrews gives them mention in this section. What does he say about Abraham? Abraham obeyed. That's the action he did. Secondly, he dwelt. There's another action he did. Thirdly, he waited. There's another action he did. Lastly, he offered. There's another action he did. You know, I don't really ever, I've never done this in a lesson. 
I've never recommended anyone to write in their Bible or to highlight this or circle that or box that. And, you know, some preachers make a living off of that. And that's great. But I think it would be beneficial for us to underline, to make a note of the action that these people did. To look at exactly how they acted upon their faith. What a great practice that would be. So we see that Sarah, what did she do? What was her action? Well, she bore a child. She bore a child out of due season. She judged him faithful, it says. She acted just as much as Abraham did. She went when Abraham said to go. And so she is given the same amount of faith as Abraham. Because of this, it says that they had children and descendants, as many as the stars of the heavens, stand on the seashore. And yet again, we see their faith is supplemented with their obedience. The text continues in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Again, I don't want to belabor it, but by faith, Isaac blessed. By faith, Jacob blessed. By faith, Joseph gave instructions. By faith, and then the action. Their faith was always supplemented with their obedience. Let's continue. Verses 23 through 29, we're going to look at Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he, was, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Here we have the entire story of Moses. The Israelites going through the Red Sea and doing all the sacrifices we've just talked about in the past couple of chapters. By faith, they did all of this. By faith in the things that had not been seen, it says. Yet again, they had all of this faith built on something that they didn't have any empirical proof for. Now, they had miracles. They saw miracles. They saw God act. But they didn't understand who the Christ was and who the promises of the Christ would be. We'll talk about that back in the Scripture we passed at the end in verses 13 and following. So by faith, Moses, what did he do? It says, by faith, Moses refused, he chose, he esteemed. Just go through the text and read along. He forsook, he endured, he kept, he passed. All of these action verbs. All of these different ways that he supplemented his faith with obedience. You know, some of the text of the Hebrews chapter 11 doesn't really need explanation. It's just a simple reminder of the things that we've read about in the life of Moses. Moses' entire life, guess what it was? It was a case study on the idea of faith. At the times he didn't have it, God scolded him at the bush, did he not? And at the time he didn't have it again, he hit the rock, and guess what happened? He got punished. But all throughout the life of Moses, his faith was supplemented with obedience. Continue our text, verse 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Yet again, by faith, because of the Israelites' faith that it wasn't in the walking around the walls of Jericho, but that it was in God that was going to knock those walls down. Because of that faith, those walls fell. 
By faith, Rahab the harlot. What did she do? She received the spies with peace. She acted because of her faith in God. Faith supplemented with obedience. Notice who he mentions in this hall of faith. This hall of fame of faith. He includes a prostitute. This harlot is known forever throughout the history of man as a heroine of faith. Why? Because she believed in the things she couldn't see. And her faith was supplemented with action and obedience. Let's read the rest, really, of, except for a couple of verses of the chapter. Starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy." They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. You know, this passage of God's Word is one of the most powerful examples of what faith can do within God's people. On what the people of God can withstand if they have a solid foundational faith within them. Now he starts this section, what more shall I say? Do you not get it? Do you not get the point I'm trying to make? What more shall I say? Sometimes, most times, all of you ask that question about me when I'm speaking. What more is he going to say about this? What more shall I say, he says. Regardless of the hardships, regardless of the trials that will be coming to you because of your faith, your faith has got to win the day. Your faith has got, it must win the day. Even if it calls for stopping the mouths of lions, quenching the violence of fire, escaping the edge of sword, fighting the armies of the aliens, being tortured, having trials of mocking, scourging, chains and imprisonment, even if you're stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain, wandering, destitute, afflicted or tormented, even if all of this happens, your faith has got to win the day. And that's why Paul would say that faith, he would reckon that faith is the shield that vanquishes all the weapons of the evil one in Ephesians 6. The shield, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Let me ask you something tonight. If you knew that because of being a Christian, just one of these things were going to happen to you. Just pick one of them. Just close your eyes and put your finger down, and that's the one that's going to happen to you. Well, I just clicked on Psalm in two. Anyone else? Anyone else get the Psalm in two one or the scourging or the, or the slain or the wandering or the destitute? Who is volunteering for that one? If you knew that just one of those were going to happen to you, would you still get in that water and become a Christian through baptism? Would you still sign that dotted line, so to speak, knowing that one of these, just one of them, were going to come? 
You know, thinking about this text in verses 32 through 38, you know who missed this entire section of the Bible? This isn't the only one they missed, but they've missed this one totally. The prosperity gospel people. They don't know this text. Become a Christian. Everything will go well. You're going to get money. You're going to get jets. You're going to get me a jet, really. You're going to do all these great things. Everything's going to go great. You're not going to get coronavirus. You're not going to have any type of sickness in your life. You're going to have a great job. You're going to get a raise. You're going to do all... Stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain, destitute, afflicted, tormented. This is what has happened to God's people, even though they had faith. Even though they acted upon that faith. This happens to God's people. Are you still willing to sign that dotted line? Sometimes, as a Christian, it's not easy in this life. Because it's going to be easier in the next life. Sometimes, as a Christian on earth, it's not easy. It should not be fun. In a field of daisies and rainbows, as the daily life of a Christian... He came to give us the abundant life. Guess where that life is found? In heaven. We should not be shocked by persecution, by trials, by tribulations. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 1 Peter 4 and verse 16 Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In James chapter 1 Count it all joy when you fall under all these trials. We're told that we are to expect persecution, to expect trials. Why? Why would I ever be willing to do that then? Why would I go through all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that agony, all of the trials? My life is already hard enough. My life is already hard enough. I don't need all of that. Go back up to verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to the mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Fast forward to verse 39. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. All of these died in faith. All of the patriarchs died in faith. All of the Mosaic Age faithful died in their faith. They were obedient. They were faithful. They were believing to the salvation of the soul. Chapter 10, verse 39. But they did not receive the promise. They did not receive the promise. They were assured of this promise. They embraced this promise. They saw it from a far ways off. But they did not receive the promise. Even though they obtained a good testimony through their faith, they did not receive the promise. What promise? The promise of Christ. Yes, they got Christ's forgiveness in retroaction 
but they, it says, did not receive the promise. Guess what they did not receive? They did not receive the better covenant of chapter 8. They did not receive the better sanctuary of chapter 9. They did not receive the sacrifice of Christ the way we are able to receive the sacrifice of Christ in chapter 10. But they had faith anyway. They obeyed anyway. Look what he says. He says, God has provided something better for us. The better letter. God has provided something better for us. One way we could explain this is they had to live with the promise of Christ coming one day. We live with the reality that Christ has come. It's not a prophecy here, a prophecy there, a little nugget about the Messiah here, a little bit of knowledge about the Messiah there. We have seen and seen the law fulfilled. We have seen Christ fulfilled. We have seen the Messiah fulfilled. We have seen the church fulfilled. This mystery that Paul talked about all throughout his epistles, we have seen the reality, not just the promise. So tonight, let's think about us for a minute. The application to our lives tonight is simple. God has expected the same exact foundational faith from His followers since all the way back in creation. He has expected that faith to move us to act and to obey. And based off of verse 6, without these qualities, it is impossible for us to please Him. What do you think this text would have meant to the original audience? Listing all of these heroes and heroines of faith, what would it have meant, meant to read that originally you know all these heroes all these heroines all these examples from the faith of yesteryear God guess what is requiring more from you hey you remember Abraham God requires more of you than he did Abraham hey you remember Moses that great leader God requires more of you than He did Moses. Jesus was the one who says, to whom much is given, much is required. No, Spider-Man didn't think that one up. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. That's the exact message we're learning tonight. Hey, you remember Enoch and Abel and Sarah and Joseph and all these prophets and all these kings who had faith, who obtained a good testimony through faith? They did not receive the promise. You did. I expect more from you. If we come to Hebrews 11 and walk away completely satisfied with our level of faith and our level of obedience, then I'm afraid we missed the entire point. If we go to Hebrews 11 to talk about what faith is more than we go to it to challenge our own faith, then I'm afraid that we've missed the point entirely. The writer isn't just reminding them of these examples. He is trying to challenge them to aspire to a greater faithfulness than these examples he's just given. Someone says, well, man, I can't have a better faith than Abraham. The guy put his own son on the altar. The guy was told, hey, get up and get out of your country. And guess what he did? He did just that. I can't do that. 
Well, you better. You better. Because you've been given a better life. A better covenant, a better sacrifice, a better sanctuary, a better Messiah, a better salvation. All the list goes on and on from the book of Hebrews. You better because you've been given better. You better have a stronger faith than all these people. You receive the blessing of the promise. You receive the reality, not just the promise. You received Christ. They received prophecies about Christ. You receive the better covenant, sanctuary, sacrifice. You better be better than those who received less. I want to ask, I want to ask you another question tonight. You ever thought about what these people in chapter 11 would think of you? I do that frequently. I think about, what would Abraham think about me? What do you think about my faith? Would he see the, willing, the faithful willingness to leave everything I know and go to a foreign country for my faith? Would Moses see in me the faithful willingness to face Pharaoh to lead the children of Israel through the wilderness? Would the prophets see in me the faithful willingness to face the trials and sufferings listed at the end of this chapter? More so, what does Jesus think about your faith? He gave you the better covenant, sanctuary, sacrifice. If your faith is not better than these, what was it for? It was for us to have a better faith. You see, it doesn't matter how much of the what, how much of the where, how much of the how, if we don't understand the why tonight. And that why is faith. Faith is why we are here tonight. Faith is what can maintain our crazy lives. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Thank you. We're going to have Brother Mike Gifford come close us out in a word of prayer.